I was walking down a narrow alley in Sri Lanka's capital. Almost every corner was guarded by a heavily armed man. There was a civil war going on, and I was there to report on the disappearances. Thousands of young men from the ethnic Tamil group, civilians, were being snatched from homes and cars and sidewalks and disappeared. It's a story that I hadn't seen covered much by the places I reported for, and it was a terrifying situation. People's fathers and sons, daughters sometimes, kidnapped and forced into camps or prisons, or kidnapped and killed. I made eye contact with the soldiers at each turn. I hoped they weren't tracking me down the alleys. I ducked into a signless, windowless office, up a flight of concrete stairs, where I met with a group of wives and mothers of the disappeared. They sat, lined up on metal chairs to tell their stories, holding folders of paperwork and fading pictures. One woman with graying hair. She said her son had gone missing in an unmarked white van. Her eyes were blank. She said, the hardest part wasn't not knowing if he was alive, it was not knowing if he was suffering. She made a point to thank me in advance for broadcasting her son's story to the world. The government was making it very difficult to tell this story of the disappearances. They tried to silence local journalists who reported it. Like a few days before I arrived, a major opposition newspaper was burned down. Journalists who covered the missing and pointed to the government were threatened. Any story or journalist or activist who posed a threat could disappear. As the Sri Lankan government tightens its grip, the media are being subjected to censorship, intimidation. A leading editor of an opposition newspaper has been murdered, and international news channels... So, because the local journalists couldn't really report the story, it seemed like exactly what a foreign correspondent, what I, should do. Once my tapes were out of the country, they would be out of reach for the government. I was staying with a Sri Lankan journalist friend and his wife. One night, we were eating a bunch of different curries we picked up down the street and joking around. Bugs flew in the open windows and swam around the fluorescent ceiling light. We were watching TV. There was a movie on about a baby. And my friend's wife said that they wanted to start a family soon. And I watched as my friend just shook his head. How can we, he said, like they had talked about this before. It's too dangerous for us. Then his mobile phone chirped. He picked it up and walked out to the porch, covering his mouth, talking quietly and urgently. He got calls like this almost every night. He came back in, upset, his fingers rubbing his temple. Another journalist, a friend, had been threatened. We stopped eating, and his wife cleared the plates without looking up. It was so dangerous that my friend had scaled back his work. He wasn't covering the disappearances, and we didn't talk a lot about my reporting. While I was working, I stayed away from him and his wife, so we would in no way give off the impression to the authorities that he was helping me. In the mornings, I'd take the bus to the city. At the bus station, police checked for bombs underneath the buses. I remember I'd hope it was raining, hard, so it would be more difficult to watch me weaving in the rain through the streets 
to interview human rights groups and senators. I tried to walk casually, stopping to check out DVDs or buy a coffee, but I was hyper-aware. My jaw tightly clamped down. On my last night, when I got back to my friend's house, he and his wife were nervous, more nervous than usual. I wrote fake names on the labels of the tapes, and I lined them up on the bed. I looked at them, and they felt so valuable, like they held someone else's chance at life. Whenever I have important tape, I worry about the physical recordings. I check over and over again to make sure the tapes are still there, like checking for a wallet or a plane ticket. I wrote my editors while we cooked dinner. I remember typing, this is a really important story. I never did that, since the stories usually speak for themselves. But I really wanted this story to air. In the dark before dawn the next day, we hoisted my suitcase into the car, and my friend motioned for me to come and talk to him in the driveway. He was unsettled, wiping his mouth with his hand. I have to ask you not to run that story, he said. He was looking down. He couldn't look me in the eye. It's too dangerous for us. They know you stayed with us. I'm so sorry. I thought for a second about arguing with him, but I knew better. When one reporter asks another to bury an important story, it's not for no reason. Sure, I said. Right, sure. Okay. We didn't talk on the way to the airport. I thought about the women in the tapes. I thought they might find it unfair. What about their stories, their families? What about the safety for their sons who were gone, vanished? We rolled slowly through armed checkpoints, barbed wire fences on wheels, pushed out of the road by young men in uniform. A few hours later, I was wheels up, looking down on the Indian Ocean. My foot resting on the backpack that held the tapes that could never be played. When I got home, I deleted them. I wiped them clean. And the story disappeared. story. It was produced by Anna Sussman. You are listening to Snap Judgment, and to hear more stories, visit snapjudgment.org.